My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. I want to tell you a little bit about my life. Uh, growing up, uh, we as a family didn't have a lot. Uh, we were on government assistance at times. We were on the poverty scale. We lived with folks, my grandparents a lot. Uh, we were, you know, really uh, at the... Uh, mercy of a lot of folks who served us, and, and that's that's a you know great season of life. And when you're a kid and you're poor, you don't know you're poor. It's fine, and then one day you wake up and you realize I don't actually have much, you know. And uh, it 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 kind of moved in my heart. It's like I want to have stuff. I want to have more. And uh, so I was 12 years old, and I got a job. We we're living in some apartments in Petaluma, California, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna work. So I, I started babysitting. That was the only thing I could do, and I was babysitting the neighbors, and it just got into that realm. And I did that about four years, and just making money. And when I could finally drive, I could drive and babysit. The highlight of my week, though, was when my mom, who was the primary breadwinner, she would take us all to McDonald's. So she'd get her paycheck, she'd cash it. We'd go to McDonald's, and my sister and my brother and I, we would have hot fudge sundaes, and that was our massive treat, and I loved it. It was such a monumental thing to get a treat like that every week, and so my mom was so cool to do that to us brats, but that's okay. Uh, We got our chores done, and we got that treat, and I looked forward to that, and it told me a lot about my mom and taught me a lot about the value of hard work, and so I just grew up working hard. By the time I was 16, I was going to a Christian school, and we didn't have the money to pay for it, so I worked at the school. The job was a custodian. Now, mind you, custodial jobs are great. There's no shame in that. But it was kind of embarrassing for me to be the custodian at my high school and have to clean the guy's bathroom because the guys would remind me that I was a custodian, if you know what I mean. And, um, and so, you know, but you do the job and you work hard and you're not working for yourself. You're working for God. You got to keep that in your mind. And then I made a switch and I started working at a gas station. I was pumping gas and cleaning up things and cleaning restrooms at a gas station. And uh, you know what that's like, right? But that's okay because you're working for the Lord. You're making money and you're doing this. And then I finally got to college and... and <laughs> As a freshman, I was the custodian in the men's dorm. And uh, college guys really know how to make your life miserable, if you know what I mean. And, uh, but that's okay, because it was all about going to school, and I wanted to better my life. And so because of that, because of work study and summer jobs at a gas station, and because of some grants and scholarships, and then because of some school loans, I was able to make it through school. And and. Everything within me wanted to get to the point where I could finally make enough money to have the things I didn't have when I was growing up, okay? Some of you have been on that journey, right? And so when I finally got, 
incredible high-paying job as a youth pastor in Boise, making $1,000 a month full-time, which is $2,000 in today's economy. I did the inflation check. Uh, I realized that wasn't enough to make it. And so the church's philosophy was, we'll keep you poor, God will keep you humble. And, um, but I was also hungry at the same time. And so mac and cheese is great for a while. You know, tuna is great for a while. Peanut butter is great for a while. And pretty soon you start hating that stuff when that's all you can afford. And I just wanted more. So I got a job working on a farm. I worked Mondays and Tuesdays, eight, 10 hour days. Farm work is awesome. It's super hard work. I mean, you know, when you've worked out on a farm all day long, you know, cleaning ditches, working on a tractor, picking up rocks, you know, out in the field, things like that. Good hard work, go do youth ministry. But I wanted some of the things that I never had. And I just wasn't making enough for that. And lo and behold, one of the guys on our board, chairman of the, of the deacon board, the leading group in that church, worked at a finance company. And he goes, hey, why don't you come on over and here's some things and you can buy these and all you have to do is sign your name. And I'm like, well, if all I have to do is sign my name, I'm up for that, right? That's awesome. And so I did that. And I did it. And I did it. And I did it. And, you know, these uh, payday loan kind of things and these financial institutions, um, it didn't dawn on me that they're in it to make money off of me. And I wasn't making money on this deal. I was actually losing. And so five years of that, I got myself into some pretty deep debt. And it was really a hard issue for me because I wanted things and I thought those things would provide. And, you know, in, in many ways they do for a season, but then there's always another thing. And so I would just go in and borrow more money because I didn't have it. And my mom, when, when she was younger and she taught us this, you would go to a store and a store called Sears or JCPenney's, if you remember those, I don't know if they still exist, but they're, you know, the buildings are there and you would go and do the layaway program, right? You want a washer and dryer, you put money every month down. And when you finally paid it up, then you go get your washer and dryer. But the reality is, is that today we don't have to do that. We just go pull out a credit card. And if we don't have a credit card or our credit cards are full, you go get another credit card, right? And we just borrow in the future. So that's, that's what I got into. And I knew, I knew, I knew it was my heart and it was a heart issue and I needed to get out of that. And so when I made a transition and moved here to Hillsborough, I was determined I'm going to get out of debt. And plus, you know, my wife, Mary Beth and I, we were dating at the time, we were getting serious. And I thought, I don't want to go into marriage with debt. And so I want to, I want to be debt free. I want to pay off all those consumer loans. And so worked hard at that. And I sold things and I sold things. And, and, um, I got to this point where I just had one debt left and I wanted to go into marriage without any debt. And I just had a couple items. I just had a couple things. And one was a vintage Fender Stratocaster and an amp. And uh, I loved those things. Those were great. And yet I knew that those would not ultimately satisfy me. And I wanted to get out of debt. So I put an ad in the paper. Remember that? That That's before Craig's list. Uh, Craig was probably alive, but he wasn't making a list yet. And so I put it out in the paper and somebody called me and said, yeah. So I went over, I took my buddy, Nate, he was in my youth group, Nate Brooks. And we went over, he was my cover. He's like 120 pounds, but he was going to do something if something went wrong. Uh, and so, um, we went over there and I sold those things and I entered into marriage without those consumer loans. And the reality is, ah, man, I was free. But the problem was I wasn't really free because I was still stuck with my heart that wanted more. And I continue even to this day struggling with desiring with my eyes and seeing things and wanting something. The apostle Paul says when he's in prison, mind you, that I have learned the secret of being content, whether I have a lot or whether I have nothing, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm full, whether I'm cold or whether I'm warm, a lot of clothes don't have much clothes. I have all these things or I don't have anything. 
I have learned the secret of being content. And I have had to struggle with that, to learn that secret of being content throughout the ages. Because in your heart and my heart, especially in the culture we live in today, is this desire to have more. Everything around us is built. All the advertisements, everybody makes money on the internet by ads. So they, they would take your money and they would turn it into their profit. And, and that's your loss because your loss is called debt. We are a debt-driven society. And if you don't believe me, here's a slide of current realities of debt. Uh, average household debt in the United States in specific categories, credit cards, uh, just under $17,000. I've known friends that have had $60,000 of credit card debt. I've, I had a friend who had $100,000-plus in credit card debt. It's a lot of credit card debt, all right? And if you wonder how somebody can get into that, you just just only pay the minimums, right? And just keep getting more credit cards, all right? Just keep getting them and forget to pay them off or just refuse to pay them off. Credit card debt is, is just a killer. Auto loans, $30,000. This is the new killer. I read an article a week or so ago. It said the new $550 a month destroyer of the American economy is, is a car loan. Is, is thinking, I need this nice car. Cars are expensive and I need to have it now. Okay, versus saving up money and then paying cash for something. Uh, student loans, $50,000. And it's a tough one because these are depreciating items. This is, this is depreciated the second you buy it because you probably don't even know where that item is anymore. Then you're paying your $30 a month minimum fee, right? Forever. And that thing is long gone. Uh, auto loans, those depreciate. Uh, student loans, maybe they appreciate unless you go too far in debt and, um, or you get a degree in art history. Um, who knows? That, that may not help you much, okay? Um, although it's a cool degree, you got to make money. Uh, but finally, mortgages, $182,000. That's kind of the average. I don't know if you're above average, and if you are, that's not a good thing. Um, broken up in the age categories, minus mortgage debt, under 35, uh, about $67,000 in consumer debt. That's a lot of money. But you get more as you get older, and you see that then you get less as you get even older, and that's because you enter into your uh, peak age uh, earning years, and your kids go off to school, praise Jesus, and, uh, sorry, uh, and, 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 you know, so you have more disposable income, right? That's what it looks like as the average American goes to their death with about $34,500 of debt. And that's what we live on. And somebody becomes the executor of your estate, and they have to sell your home, and they have to balance everything and divide the rest of everything up to your children and to those who will inherit all of this. Is there anything more to life than that? Because our world and our culture says that is true living. Well, if you've been on with us on the journey through Ecclesiastes, Solomon, a very wise guy, the Bible says the wisest guy to ever live, didn't end up living the wise life. And he gave his life over to a pursuit of pleasure, a pursuit of security, and a pursuit of wealth. And he walked a journey that we see all around us today, outside the church and inside the church, basically mirroring a, a post-Christian culture that said, okay, I tried the God thing, it didn't work, so now I want to try the pleasure thing, or I want to try the security thing, or now I want to try the wealth thing. And so Solomon has gone down a road, and thank, thank you, God, he stopped and wrote it down for our instruction and our encouragement. And he writes about a view of life after God. 
Now, the first week we talked about how wealthy he was, but I wanted to reframe that because we're talking about money and possessions, wealth, and eternity today. And so one of the commentators had this amazing thing to say about Solomon's wealth. So I want to show this to you on the screen. It says, all of Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and those of his house were pure gold. So there's gold, and there's 24 karat gold. Okay, that's awesome. The shields of his mighty men were made of beaten gold, and his great throne was made of ivory and overlaid with the finest gold. Do you get the theme going on here, right? Silver in Jerusalem became as common as stones. Solomon literally built himself a paradise of pleasure. One of his chief resorts was Ithan, where when mornings were beautiful, he often went in stately progress, dressed in snow-white raiment, riding in his chariot of state, which was made of the finest cedar. That cedar was imported from up in Lebanon, decked with gold and silver on purpose, and carpeted with the costliest tapestry work by the daughters of Jerusalem, and attended, this gets really good here, by a bodyguard of 60 valiant men, of the tallest and handsomest of the young men of Israel, arrayed in Tyrian purple with their long black hair, and this is the top it all off, freshly sprinkled with gold dust every day, glittering in the sun. Now, you know you have too much gold when all you can think of next is, hey, let's get that cheese grater and get that bar of gold. What can we do with these flakes? We'll sprinkle them on our young men's hair as they walk along. That's called filthy rich, my friends. All I can think of is Scrooge McDuck jumping into his coins of gold and spitting them out. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, you need to watch YouTube more, okay? Because it's a great clip, all right? It's just this idea of you've got so much, you just don't know what to do with it, right? Now, we saw this the first week that Solomon's possessions and in-country were incredible, but what he got from out-of-country, all of the imports and all the taxes and all the gifts that came from everywhere totaled $1.6 billion of gold a year. $1.6 billion of gold a year. Now, if you were to break that up into the 365 days, that would be just over $400 million a day he brought in. Can you imagine that? I, I would take one of those days, right? I'd take like six hours. That's a million bucks, right? You ever watch those things when they, you know, so-and-so gets $25 million or so-and-so gets $40 million or whatever, these basketball, NBA, NFL, you know, you look at all these major league and you're thinking, what in the world are people going to do with all that money, right? And they're going to play a game. They're going to make $80,000 a game. Are you kidding me? I'm going to make $100,000 a game. I'm going to set out a game and take a fine of $25,000. Who cares? It's only $25,000. I'm like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll fine you, and you can just give me the money, right? That'd be fine for me. That is such opulent wealth that we don't even know how to factor that into our lives, right? Because you and I live on a different scale of economy. But no matter what the scale of economy it is, Solomon comes in, and he says, I want to teach you what I've learned, that it's not about the number of zeros. It's about the space in your heart. It's about the true matter of what is most important, not what we're taught is most important. At the end of life, Solomon says, I want to share a little bit, a lot about my journey. We're going to see a lot of verses, and Solomon's going to be pretty honest. And we're going to see that it's not all that we think it is when we pursue these things. Now, last week, we saw Solomon in the temple. And he, he, he 
journeys to varying places in the sectors of society. And last week he was in the temple of God, we would say the church. And he says, be careful with your words because if you make these rash vows, intending to keep it and don't, or not even really intending to keep it, you're going to jeopardize your relationship with God because God takes all these vows very, very, very seriously. I'm in the book of Numbers right now and reading through and I get all these rules this morning about vows between men and women and husbands and wives and children and the importance that God places on our words and our commitments and our promises, especially to God and including to each other. And so when we think about this, Solomon says, and we saw this last week, just watch your words because you might have the words of a fool and God takes no delight in fools. So don't be a fool by just making bold proclamations of what you're going to do. Just end up doing it instead. Well, today he goes to the bank and he says, I want to teach you about money and possessions and wealth and eternity. And bottom line, I want to tell you that they will not ultimately satisfy you. You can go down that road, but at the end of the road, you're going to be like everybody else, including me. You're going to be bankrupt. Maybe you're going to have money in the bank, but spiritually in your soul, it's going to be bankrupt. Solomon says, I want to show you some lies. I want to show you some myths about money and possessions. We believe those myths and lies. And when we do, we miss out on the true blessings of God. Because when we have our eyes on money, our possessions, the next purchase, we cannot see God with those eyes. Because all we see is the next thing we want. And the Bible tells us, bottom line, my friends, if you have to leave early from the message, those are called idols. Things that are cheap replacements for the true God that ultimately don't satisfy us. Well, Solomon starts in chapter 5. We're going to read chapter 5 and into chapter 6, so a lot of verses, so I'll get on it. Uh, Starting in verse 10, he says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Now, i got to be frank. I read this and I thought, ooh, that's going to be hard to preach because I know my own heart. And that's going to be hard to preach because I live in America And that's going to be hard to preach because we're in the suburbs and we're middle class. Some may be lower middle class, some upper middle class. But we're, I mean, maybe you don't feel like it, but we're doing really well. We're the rich of the world. And so, I I don't know, those who love money will never have enough. That's, That's not the message that we get preached to us all the time on television and music and movies on the internet, Facebook, Instagram. We, we get a different message that if you have enough, then you'll, you know, then you'll be enough. But Solomon says that's a, that's a never-ending journey. And then he says, how meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. You're like, I don't know, because everything around me, everything within me says that would bring happiness, right? I mean, isn't that what we see today all around us in Hollywood, all over, that wealth brings true happiness? And so I was thinking about this, and I was studying this. I'm like, how am I going to preach this? Because this is such a counter-cultural statement. That is even countercultural in church, my friends. Because we've bought the same lie that everybody else in our culture has bought, is that wealth will bring true happiness. And Solomon says, I just want you to know it won't. Like, I don't know how to process that. And some of you are probably sitting here thinking, nice words, but that ain't true. And, and especially if you're, if you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a churchgoer, and you're sitting here going, see, that, that's bogus. I know, you know. But I just want you to take these words at face value as we walk the journey. Because there is a tremendous amount to learn. And I think, I think we could discover that the guy's right. Because he's walked a journey that we haven't. And we could put trust in what God has said. But it's going to take rejecting the cultural messages all around us. And it's going to take rejecting some of the deepest desires of our heart. If they're not in the right place. Which 
it's kind of tough. It's a, it's a tough message for you and for me. Because all of us think, I could just use a little more. Let's follow along with his words. He says, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. Oh, man, that's good. Those pesky relatives, right? I mean, already he's sharing some of the myths. He's saying, first of all, there's a myth that money brings true happiness. It doesn't. It, it brings more problems. I mean, there is some initial happiness. There's no question. And, and you can study this. People have done research on it. The level of money, the amount of money you need to be happy. And there's a level you hit that, and the more money does not bring more happiness. Ultimately, it brings more frustration and failure and fear. And, and there's a level. There's a level. Uh, you can do the research on this, and there's about sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars is what they say, which is interestingly enough exactly the median income in Washington County. Uh, in Washington County, in Hillsboro. Uh, our median income is higher than in Portland and Multnomah County because of the industries that are all around us, the high-tech, Intel, and things like that. And sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars $75,000, you reach a point where more than that actually isn't more. It doesn't bring more happiness. It feels like it does, but it actually ends up consuming us more. And some of you are like, dude, I would love to make sixty to $75,000. That would bring me true happiness. And it would to a point. And some of you are like, I don't want to make that because I'd be like cutting my income in thirds. You know, I don't want to do that, right? Okay. But what are you doing with what you have? He says here, what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? He says, first of all, there's a lie if you believe that money's going to bring happiness or if you believe that money's going to solve all your problems, it's, gonna, it's just going to bring more problems. I have no way to fathom this, but it is absolutely true. You see it all the time that people who win the lottery are bankrupt by and large, in a few years. It doesn't make any sense. When you, you get a million dollars and you take a cash payout of $600,000 or several million dollars and you have several million dollars cash payout and you find that people are bankrupt. You know why? Because it's the relatives that come and help you spend it all, right? How many, how many people have so much money that it slips through their fingers and they don't know where it goes, right? It doesn't take a Johnny Depp to figure this out, right? If you've read anything... How many islands does it take to be satisfied? Well, just one more island. That's all. Just one more island. How many people in an entourage does it take to feel important? Well, just a few more because I want to be seen with that many more. How many Bugatti Veyrons does it take? Well, just a couple more because there are only millions, right? Because you reach a point where it just doesn't satisfy you. Well, okay, he says, so what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? There's a myth that money will bring security, and it actually doesn't bring security. It actually makes us more and more insecure. People who work hard, though, sleep well, whether they eat little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. You think about that. There's a myth that money will bring peace of mind. Solomon says the more you have, the more you struggle with. You can study J.D. Rockefeller uh, over 100 years ago. He was the wealthiest person and by inflation, he still is the wealthiest person to ever be alive other than Solomon. But the reality is, is that it just ate him alive. Standard oil, his monopoly, all that he had, he was consumed by a worry of all of his money. It, it literally ate him alive. He was eating milk and crackers just to calm his stomach, and he was not going to live. He reconnected with God. He still wasn't the greatest person on the planet, but he reconnected with God, and he ended up giving his money away in force, and that's when he found peace, and that's when he started sleeping at night because when he gave it away, it made a difference. If you're a stingy person, trust me, this is my heart, the only antidote is generosity. And just give it away. 
Just find ways, find people, just write a check and give it away. That will change your heart. He goes on to talk about this. Solomon says, there's another serious problem that I have seen under the sun that's in this world. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. Again, a myth that it would be secure. It's not. He says one thing, hoarding. Hoarding is not saving. Saving is when you put money aside for the future. And it's wise to save. Solomon's other book, Proverbs, talks a lot about saving and about living within your means. So savings are good. Savings is one thing. But savings run amok is hoarding. When you have so much that you are saving for just saving's sake. Okay, that's wrong. Hoarding is wrong. If you have money you haven't spent and God's given it to you, give it away, right? If you've invested, if you've put money, that's fine. Aside, great, you've got money investment for retirement. Okay, that's fine. But at some point, how much is enough? And otherwise, that's hoarding. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour. We know that. We've had several crashes in our lifetime with stock markets and housing markets, bubbles bursting. Everything is lost. In the end, there's nothing left to pass on to one's children. We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us. Now, I don't know if he's thinking about Job at this point, but Job was many, many years before Solomon. Job is a contemporary of Abraham. Job was the one who said these words, I came into this world naked, and I'm going to leave this world naked. God is given, and God is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That was after he lost everything, all his wealth, all his homes, all his livestock, all his possessions, all his children. He lost everything in one day. And he said, I came in naked. I'm going to go out naked. I'm going to learn to be satisfied. Reminds me of a story Jesus said. There's brothers that were fighting about inheritance and who's going to get more and everything. And one guy goes, Jesus, be on my side. It's like, wouldn't it be great if Jesus were on your side? That'd be a just war right there, right? It's like, I want more than my brother. And Jesus, if you're on my side, then I've got leverage. And Jesus said, you know, it's like, man, pull the Jesus card, right? Jesus is like, I'm not going to get into that fight because the fight is a fight in your heart, not with your brother. He goes, let me tell you a story. And he tells a story about a guy that had everything, and yet he wanted more. And he had bumper crops one season. And he goes, I've got so much. What am I going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put so much away that I can eat, drink, and be merry, and I'm just stored away, and I'll live fat on the land. And Jesus says, well, that's nice, except there's one thing you forgot. You're going to die tonight. And Jesus says, it's a fool who spends all his life on his earthly investments and never invests in his eternal relationship with God. You could be rich in this world and poor spiritually, and Jesus says that is a fool. Or you could be content with what you have and be rich in your relationship with God. So Solomon goes on, and he says this. He says, this too is a very serious problem. People leave the world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing. Like working for the wind, there's his metaphor, chasing the wind, trying to grab the wind. It's just endless. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. These are people like this, and, and, and maybe you know some of them. I, I know a person like this, a friend, his dad is this way, that he's always wanting more, and he's never satisfied. His, his dad was even a pastor, but he's a bitter, frustrated man living under the cloud because he never has enough, and he's always on a get-rich-quick scheme because if I could just have more, if I could just do the one thing versus do the hard work of saving and working hard through your life. People who just want it all, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Let's go on with the text here. He says, even so, I've noticed one thing at least that is good. And here it is. It's good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. In other words, if God has given you wealth, enjoy that. If God has not given you wealth, okay, you can work for it, but what are you working for? 
You should be able to enjoy what you have with your family and with your friends. God has given that to them and accept their lot in life, and it's a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it. To enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past, or I would say even over the future of what they don't have. Solomon is saying that you have to find satisfaction in where God has put you. It doesn't mean you don't work. It doesn't mean you don't better your life. I worked hard to better my life. That's fine. You do that. There's great. But if bettering your life means you're going to have more stuff, now there's a problem. If bettering your life means you can enjoy life and you can bless other people, that's awesome. But if it's all for you, there is the struggle. He goes on into chapter 6 and he says this. If we focus more on the gifts than on the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. This is from Warren Wiersbe. It's a great quote from one of the commentaries I read. read. If we focus more on the gifts than the giver, we're guilty of idolatry. If we accept his gifts but complain about them, we're guilty of ingratitude. If we hoard his gifts and will not share with others, we're guilty of indulgence. Think about that. If we end up worshiping the gift versus the giver, that's idolatry. If we end up complaining about it and not being thankful for all we have already, that's ingratitude. That's a sin. And if we hoard everything and we refuse to share it, keep it for us, it's indulgence. But if we yield to his will and use what he gives us for his glory, then we can enjoy life and be satisfied. Warren Wearsby. In chapter 6, Solomon says these words. There is another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want. But then he doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die. And someone else, even a stranger, ends up enjoying their wealth. This is meaningless, a sickening tragedy. He goes on. A man might have a hundred children. That's a hyperbole, by the way. Don't get any ideas. All right. And live to be very old. But if he finds no satisfaction in life and doesn't even get a decent burial, it would have been better for him to be born dead. Now, this is a, that's a hard saying. Solomon says it would have been better to die in the womb. That's pretty tough seems really insensitive, right? He says his birth would have been meaningless and he would have ended in darkness. He wouldn't even have a name and he would never have seen the sun or known of his existence, yet he would have had more peace than in growing up to be an unhappy man. He goes on with this guy. He says he might have lived a thousand years twice over again, hyperbole here, but still not find contentment. And since he must die like everyone else, well, what's the use? Look at this. All people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. So are wise people really better off than fools? Do poor people gain anything by being wise and knowing how to act in front of others? And then he concludes the matter. Take a look at these words. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. Just dreaming about nice things is meaningless. Like, here it is again chasing the wind. This is his conclusion, my friends. I love this. Enjoy what you have. Oh, go back here. Enjoy what you have rather than desiring what you don't have. This is his conclusion. What has God given you? Work hard. In fact, working hard, you'll have a good night's sleep, right? Okay, work hard. Don't just dream about things. That's a fantasy. It's like chasing the wind. But work hard, and whatever God has given you, just bless him with that because he has given it to you. He's the one that's blessed you. Give it to other people. Don't hoard it. Save money, sure. Provide, but that's great. But don't use it all for yourself. And, and most of all, don't think that the gift is the actual God. That, that's idolatry. That's like bowing down before your possessions and worshiping them, which sounds ridiculous to us, but that's how they did it. And I think that's how we still do it, although we don't consider it that. Just dreaming about the next thing. Yeah, it'll provide satisfaction for a season. 
but then it doesn't satisfy anymore, right? How many times have we bought things and they brought us enjoyment and then after a while we're done and we just throw them out on the used market, right? It's like, yeah, but I just need the next thing. And if we live our lives needing the next thing, we will never find ultimate satisfaction except what Solomon says is enjoy what God has already given you rather than desiring what you don't have. Jesus said this real clearly. He says, the ability to enjoy life comes from within. It's about our character, not circumstances. And these are some tough words. He says in Matthew, or this one's in Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, if you put that on the screen, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, the, I, I, think, I think the reason that people have rejected the message of Jesus Christ is because they've rejected the messengers of Jesus Christ. When people see your life, do they see people that are any different than them? Do they see a person, a man or woman, young or old, that has a totally different focus? Statistically, no. If you look at all the reports, no. People inside the church, we live just like people outside the church. Morally, relationally, financially, we have no difference. We're just as much debt as everybody else. There's no statistical difference between you and somebody that doesn't even love God. And so what's the use, right? I mean, for them, I mean, honestly, if I were outside the church, I'd wonder, what's the whole point? You go to church and sing songs and hear a boring 37-minute message, right? should be 35, but it'll be 37 today, all right? It's okay, because 9 o'clock, it was like two hours, okay? Here's the deal. I think the reason people have rejected Christianity is because of Christians, not because of God. I just don't think they've seen God. I don't think they've seen Jesus show up in us. Because the reality is we've bought the same lie everybody else has bought. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, why Why are you running after all this stuff? Why are you running after clothes or food or drink or all this stuff? Jesus says that's what the pagans do, people who don't have a true God. You have a heavenly Father that loves you and cares for you and provides for you. Why don't you put him first, seek his kingdom first, and then he'll provide everything. He'll care for all your needs. My friends, it's my opinion, and it, it is my opinion, but it's a lot of people's opinions too, who are out looking at the spiritual landscape of America. If we as followers of Christ would have been truly different, trusting in our Heavenly Father versus everything else that everybody else is trusting in for wealth and security, America would have been different. And I think America could be different. But it's only going to happen if we change. Those of us in this room, listening to this, watching this, if we have a heart change, if we stop looking at the things that we don't have, thinking they will ultimately provide for us and satisfy us, or the things that we have accumulated and making them more important than the God who gave us the gifts. If we could get that right, I really believe that people would look at us and go, no, those are people that are different. Can you imagine if we didn't have any debt if the church had zero debt, everybody in the church had zero debt, that we worked hard to pay all of our debts, we didn't accumulate, we weren't always buying the latest and greatest things, okay? We saved up money, and we actually had money to be generous. Can you imagine what it would look like if we were the most generous people on the planet? Forget Bill and Melinda Gates, right? Forget Warren Buffett. 
Forget those people, really. I mean, what if the church led the way in generosity? That would make a statement for the world. What if we didn't have all the consumer debt that everybody else had? And people, why are you living this way? Well, I need to tell you because I had a discovery and that was more important than, me, than God to me. So I gave that up so I could fully be free. And God gave me things and now I'm giving them away for others. What if we lived differently? One of the things that really helped my wife and I along this journey is uh, Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And we've got uh, a, a class going right now uh, on Wednesdays. And it just, it just started, you know, and, and yet Mondays are starting right now, coming up this week. Um, it's a great, great, great class. It's an opportunity for you to evaluate everything in light of eternity. Uh, Dave's a great teacher. He's funny. He's really strong. He's really bold. And you won't like him, some of the videos, because he will speak truth. But it is life-changing information when you approach it from a biblical standpoint. For me, along the way, I had to learn that money ultimately wouldn't satisfy me because there's a part of my life that can only be satisfied when I connect with my Heavenly Father. And yet I still struggle. I still see things. I've had to learn to be content. I have to teach myself to be content. I have to say no to my desires and then wait it out and see what God wants. If we seek first his kingdom, that'll make a difference in our lives, the lives of this church, and I believe the lives of the community all around us, and then they'll see Jesus in us, and that will be attractive. But if we're just living like everybody else, there's nothing attractive about that. Would you bow your head right now? Father, I don't know what our debt load, I don't know what our income level is. I don't know what our last purchase is or our next purchase is. But you know all these things and more. You know what our deepest desire is. And you know what our deepest desire could be and should be as a follower of Christ. So speak to us, Lord. Speak deep into our heart. I pray, Spirit, you would remind us of any idols, of any objects of worship. And we would walk away from those, throw them down, destroy them as we walk toward you. Jesus gave his very life so we could be free. I pray, Father, that we would live that life of freedom through Jesus and that people would see in us a different way to live, a a, a life of generosity, a life of gratitude, a life of growing in a new relationship with you. Father, that would change the world. So do a work in our heart, God. We pray in your name. Amen.